there? All right. I guess we don't have a video for you today. I thought that was set up in motion up there, but I guess it didn't get there. But you know what? We're going to be talking today. This is Palm Sunday, and of course, this is a special day. It is a day that kicks off the Easter week, which is filled with all kinds of teachings from Jesus, and that's why we really want you to tune in on Facebook this week to kind of cover some of the things that will be happening that happened a couple thousand years ago with Jesus himself, and we're going to be highlighting some of those things for you this week. I just want to remind you that there are stories behind the story of what we call as Passion Week or Easter Week. Yesterday, in the history of time, on Saturday, Mary anointed Jesus for burial, and that, that happened yesterday in this whole time frame of Passion Week. And of course, today, I'm going to be talking about when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he comes in with a huge parade, there's a lot of shouting and laughing, and, and there's, there's a lot of people rejoicing, and they're shouting Hosanna, which is basically our deliverer comes, the redeemer comes, is what they're saying to Jesus, that, you know, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and so Lazarus is there with Jesus, and, and you know, it's pretty much a great spectacle to see Jesus coming in with the guy he raised from the dead, who had been dead for a few days. That's kind of, you don't see that every day walking down the street, you know what I mean? Hey, that's Lazarus. He was dead for a few days. Jesus raises from the dead. So there's a whole lot of shouting and hallelujah going on there. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to remind you that tomorrow on Monday, there's a few other things that happen in Scripture. Jesus curses the fig tree. That's part of what happens tomorrow. Jesus clears the temple tomorrow for the second time. Jesus predicts his death also in his teachings, and that happened on Monday, a Passion Week. And then on Tuesday, uh, the disciples see the withered fig tree because Jesus cursed it. One of the only times he cursed something that was alive and that died. And, but there's a reason behind that. It was the representation that the fig tree was Israel, and Israel did not recognize their king nor produce the fruit of the kingdom as they were designed to do. Jesus is questioned by what authority he is doing what he's doing, especially the cleansing of the temple. He tells three parables. He talks about the seven woes, which are directed at the religious leaders. He talks about the story of the widow's might. The Olivet Discourse happens, or the little apocalypse, a teaching that he does, occurs as well on Tuesday. There's the tax of Caesar, which is addressed. There is the marriage at the resurrection, seven brothers' wives, question answered. There's the two most important commandments given. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, mind, and soul, and all thy strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Three more parables are told on Tuesday, the ten virgins, talents, and the sheep and the goats. And then Wednesday, in Scripture, is silent. But then we move to Thursday, or Monday Thursday, which means to command. It's, it's the preparation for Passover is happening that day. There is the Passover meal that happens Thursday night. There's Jesus when he washes his disciples' feet. There's the prophecies of his betrayal. He predicts Peter's denial. There's the farewell discord, the Lord's Supper. Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays in the garden. There's the betrayal by Judas. There's the trial. And then we move into Good Friday. And on Good Friday, I'll be sharing a message with you about what happens at the end of the trial, the cross from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m., the crucifixion, the three hours of darkness from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., the earthquake that accompanies that, the observation of the people around. And then, of course, we have the death of Jesus at about 3 p.m. And so that kind of is going to wrap up, and then we're going to, go to move our way into Easter Sunday because Saturday's quiet as well. And so I want you to remind you of some of the events that are happening this week, and maybe uh, I'll post this online for you, and you can maybe read some of the scriptures each day so you understand what happened each day thousands of years ago when Jesus came into Jerusalem and kind of set everything in motion. You know, we're talking about breakthrough from the grave today. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I think we need a breakthrough from death today, and this virus is going around. And I want to encourage you to really be praying, crying out to God, maybe repenting of sin, crying out for our nation, and really praying for a breakthrough. I posted something on Facebook a couple days ago. It was a great idea by another pastor. And, 
And he talks about how when we get to Thursday, that they would celebrate Passover is the night that the death angel rolled into Egypt and took the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But anyone of the believers of the nation of Israel that believed God could protect them, they put blood up over their doorposts. So we're challenged you to put up red ribbons. I've already put the red ribbons on the front of the church, in the back of the church. You could put up red ribbons. You could put up red cloth, whatever, to kind of just say, hey, Lord, protect our house from this this deadly death, this spirit of death that seems to be going around us. And, and I really believe God can protect us. I believe God can be there for us. And so I want to encourage you to kind of maybe think of doing that this week and getting that out there. And maybe when somebody asks you, hey, why do you have that red thing on your on the front of your house? You get a great opportunity to tell them about what God did for the nation of Israel back on Passover years and years ago. Next week, you know, as we're looking at, you know, why we're here, it is breakthrough from the grave. And Jesus said in 1 John, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And my text out of today is going to come from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. And I'll also be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. I want to read these texts for you because really, you know, there's this great song that is sung by Bethel and Molly Skaggs, and I know our worship team is going to sing it for Easter Sunday. We sang it, you know, about a month or so back, but, but the, the name of the song is Ain't No Grave, and we kind of titled our Easter series, There Ain't No Grave. There ain't no grave that can hold him down, and if he walked out of the grave, the song says, then we will walk out of the grave too. So if Jesus overcome the grave, and he told us we can overcome the grave because he overcame the grave, we thought, what a great theme for the Easter week, that we can overcome the grave with Jesus because he overcame it, and we too don't have to be sucked into this death thing, sucked into that where there's no life, there's, there's no hope because there's always hope in Jesus. And so, you know, that's kind of our theme, and, you know, this Palm Sunday is kind of interesting because, you see, Palm Sunday starts off with a great big celebration of parade. And so the parade is going on, and the parade kind of starts about, about two miles from Jerusalem, around Bethany, around the Mount of Olives there, around Bethpage. And that kind of starts this whole parade where Jesus is, is basically put up on a young colt, a donkey, and he starts his journey toward Jerusalem. And it's interesting that there's a lot of stories that are going on because, you see, Jesus is heading toward the city of Jerusalem. Passover is being celebrated. There's a lot of people that have come from all over the Middle East to come to this celebration because it was huge for the Jewish people. But as, as Jesus is coming along and this parade is going on and as Jesus is riding on the donkey down the road, there's a lot of different things happening. And I, I want to draw your attention to that. I want you to know that as he's riding his donkey down the road, there's people lining both sides of the path or the street or the road. And I want you to know that as he's riding down the middle, he sees the faces of all these people. A lot of them shouting, Hosanna. A lot of them shouting, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, King David. Our king has come. Our deliverer has come. Some people actually take the shirt off their back, their coats, and lay it in front of Jesus. Others go break palm branches off of trees and lay them in front of Jesus as a sign of honor of a conquering king, as a sign of honor of someone who is royalty and who is worthy of praise. And Jesus sees their faces. He observes them sitting on the donkey. You know, it wasn't a fast-moving car. It's a slow-moving donkey. And I'm sure he's looking people face-to-face, eye-to-eye, as he's journeying on down, and they're all celebrating and shouting and and shouting hallelujah. There's, there's a lot of testimonies in the crowd. There's a lot of miracles that are being recognized in this moment. Why the disciples were doing this is there's a lot of miracles. And they've been celebrating all these different miracles. But there's also a lot of deception represented on the faces of the people in the crowd too. See, if you really understood what the parade was all about, really, they had their own ideas, but few knew the historic connection of this parade in the history of heaven and to resurrection power from sin and death. They didn't get that. They didn't make that connection until, well, really afterwards when Jesus rises from the dead. But it's all found in Jesus, and Jesus is a focal point at this moment. So let's pick up our text. I'm going to read Luke 19, verses 28 to 44 first. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, 
at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. You know, I find it interesting. These disciples really like, okay, Jesus, you want me to go take this colt that's tied up that belongs to somebody else? What if they say, hey, what are you doing still in that colt? That was kind of like, you'd go to jail for that. But he says, but hey, if they ask you why you're taking it, just say, hey, the Lord needs it. So whoever the owner was, whoever the people were, they knew the Lord. And they knew that, oh, okay, if Jesus needs my donkeys, he can have them. And, and so, so they, they, they were obedient. They went and did that. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. The guy's like, okay, go ahead, take it. I'm all for helping Jesus out here. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, I want you to notice this. I've read this triumphal entry a lot in my lifetime. I've probably read it hundreds and hundreds of times. This is the first time this week when I read it, and I read it here in the Gospel of Luke, that I noticed this part. As he approached Jerusalem, the parade is going on, the people are celebrating him, they're cheering him. He saw the city, and he wept over it. I had never saw that before. I had missed that part of the whole celebration of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it just hit me this week, like, whoa, I missed that. Right in the middle of the big parade, right in the middle of the big, hallelujah, hosanna, Jesus is the greatest, you're amazing, you rose Lazarus, right in the middle of it, Jesus starts to weep. Now, you're not supposed to do that in the middle of a parade. A, you know, hey, like, Jesus, pull it together, man, pull it together. You know, this is the time to be happy, let's be happy. Why are we crying? Okay. But he knew something that nobody else even realized. And he goes on to say, this is why he cried, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Wait a minute, pause, hold on here. We're at the end of our little section. So Jesus, in the midst of the parade, in the midst of everybody shouting, Hallelujah, Son of David, King of the Lord, the Deliverer has come, the King of Israel has come. Basically, most of the people in the crowd had a mindset that Jesus was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. They didn't understand that he actually came to deliver them from their sin and set them free. And so Jesus starts to weep because he sees all the people celebrating him. He sees the people throwing the coats down, the shirts off their back. He sees them laying palm branches before him. But he knows that most of those people in the crowd have no clue who they're even celebrating or why they're celebrating. And he starts to weep because he sees what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's a prophetic word that he shares there. Because about 40 years later in 70 AD, everything Jesus spoke about happened when the Romans besieged the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they besieged it for quite a long time, and many people died as a result of the rebellion that rose up. The Jewish people tried to rebel against Rome, and Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And Jesus sees all that, and he sees the suffering that's coming because these individuals in the crowd that day did not realize who he really was. And they weren't going to put their faith in him. They weren't going to believe in him. And we know the crowd's fickle. We always know fans are fickle. If you're winning, we're all on your side. But your team starts to lose, man, we're condemning you. Newspaper articles are ripping on you. You have sideline coaches on the side of what you should or shouldn't be doing. Who needs to be fired? Who needs to be let go? I mean, you know, the, the crowd's fickle. 
Let's read Matthew chapter 21. I want to give you another perspective on this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken about by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this guy? Why is there a parade? Why are all these people shouting and hallelujahing and throwing down their coats and their shoats and their, their palm branches? Why are they doing this? And the crowd answered, Hey, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. Hey, by the way, this is the legend. This is the man. This is the one who's doing the miracles that raised Lazarus from the dead and the Nain's widow uh, raised her, her kid from the dead and, and the one who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and, and the one who did healing of the blind men. This is him. This is the guy doing the miracles. This is the guy who fed 5,000 people in the wilderness with just a few fish and bread. This is the guy in the flesh right before you. But they still didn't understand who he was for the most part. And that's what made Jesus weep. And, you know, that's a prophecy, by the way, that had been prophesied 483 years prior. But Jesus fulfilled that prophecy on this day. It was a 483-year-old prophecy out of the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfills it this day. And so he said, just like God said, your king's going to ride in on basically a donkey. The king, the deliverer, the great one, your Messiah, the one you should look to to set you free from sin and death. He's going to ride in on a donkey, not on a white stallion like most of the generals in that day would do after having a great victory out on the battlefield. But he would ride in on a donkey. And so we have this idea is most of these people really don't have a clue, even though they're voicing it with their mouths, they really don't have a clue who Jesus is. So we see the beginning of the breakdown of the breakthrough from the grave to resurrection power and victory over sin and death starts with the parade on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's a two, about a two-mile parade. We have a donkey or two, according to Scripture. We have Jesus riding on the colt. We have disciples pronouncing Jesus. We have Jesus' disciples that are walking beside him. His followers are walking with him. They're praising him. In the entourage, there is James and John, the sons of thunder, there is Peter, who's going to deny Christ pretty quickly. There's doubting Thomas that's not going to really believe Jesus is raised from the dead. There's Andrew. There's Judas, who's going to betray Jesus. He's right there with the crowd, by the way. There's Mary and Martha and their brother, who Jesus had raised from the dead. There's Lazarus. There are victory shouts for all the miracles. The blind are healed, the deaf hear, the dead raised to life, people delivered from demons, lepers made whole, to name just a few. There are shouts echoing through the crowd. There is a lot of singing. There's a lot of high-fiving. There's a lot of chanting of, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, it's a pretty great celebration. Imagine there's a lot of laughter, excitement, and jubilee. There are people taking their shirts off. I want to say that again. There's, you know, if you look at the crowd that day, it's interesting. Now, Jesus is, like I want to say, that Jesus slowly rode in on a donkey. I'm sure he could look at everybody. You look him right in the eye. Faces in the crowd of parades are an interesting thing to look at. You know why? Years ago, it seems like a lifetime ago, maybe about 17 years ago, I would drive the float for Ashley, who won Miss Clayton. She became Miss Clayton. And Miss Clayton, by the way, had to ride on a parade in all these different parades. Am I good? All right, all right. And so Ashley, as Miss Clayton, 
would get on the float with the princesses and the other royalty girls, the runners-up and all that, and they would be dressed in their beautiful gowns and wear their crowns. And, and I had the task of driving the float for them. And, you know, there, you know, to us as the McCartney family in Wisconsin prior to this, parades were, you know, they weren't nothing new because the girls were all in band and they all played in marching bands. So we went to a lot of parades, but the difference is now, I used to be on the sideline looking at them march down the middle. Now I'm in the middle driving the float. Now nobody's really looking at me, but you do see a lot of faces and a lot of people looking your way, but they're all looking at the girls on the back of the float as I'm driving the truck. And I started to notice after, because by the way, we did 17 parades that year. 17 parades. You see a lot of faces. You see a lot of faces in the crowd. You do a lot of parades. And you start to notice a few things after you've done a few of these from being in the center of the road and everybody looking at you. I started noticing faces after the second or the third parade. And I started thinking, it's, kinda, it's really different being on this side of the parade than on that side of the parade, because on that side of the parade, you're kind of looking out, and the center of attention is in the middle, which was the girls. Well, I want to say it again. Nobody was looking at me. I was just driving a truck, okay? <laughs> and they're doing their wave, you know? And I look at faces of anticipation. Especially the kids, because, man, the kids were there, they were, they were waiting. Some of them had bags, some of them had buckets, because they knew what was coming. As soon as the royalty came through, came the candy. And, man, they were excited for candy. And they were excited about what they could get from this parade, which was the candy. And the reason they were at the parade, it really wasn't to look at the girls, it was to get the candy. They wanted the candy. They wanted the goodies. And, and I started thinking, I wonder how many people in the crowd that day are looking at Jesus and they're just there for the goodies. Hey, maybe he'll do a miracle for me. Maybe he'll feed me supernaturally. Maybe he'll give me some kind of financial blessing or miracle. Hey, I'm, I'm going to go cheer this Jesus guy on because, hey, maybe he'll give me some goodies. I wonder how many in the crowd were like that. But, you know, this is what I saw when I was driving my truck and pulling the float. I saw people who revealed all the ache of their lives written on their faces. I could see it driving the van. I could see their faces and I could see people who showed through their face all the wrong choices they had made in their lives. Even though some of them were smiling, you could still see the struggle that was on their faces and the struggles they were in on their face. I saw people addicted to stuff and how they were trapped in their addictions. I saw that just driving this float and looking at the people and looking into their faces. I saw happy people, yeah. I saw families doing the parade together. But I also saw broken families doing the parade apart. I saw stressed out people on the side with their kids. I saw farmers. I saw construction workers. I saw factory workers. I saw moms. I saw lots of kids of all ages. I saw some kids on their dad's or their grandpa's shoulders. I saw the people and the wealthy at the parades. I saw apathetic people who could care less about the parade. I mean, really, they're just like, I'm here. I'm doing my thing. I'm here, okay? I saw drunk people at the parade, believe it or not, and sometimes it was 11 o'clock in the morning we were doing the parade, and some of these people were blasted out of their mind at 11 o'clock in the morning. I saw policemen and firemen, and I saw ambulance workers. I saw city workers. I really saw a lot of faces in many of the small towns across northwest Wisconsin that year as we did 17 parades. There were thousands of faces in the crowd that I saw. By the way, I did not know most of their names. But each face had a story, I was reminded. Each face had a divine destiny to be achieved or to be thrown away. And God reminded me that as I was driving my truck. Each face created in the image of God. Each face unique and different. Each face represented someone's dreams and hopes. Each face looking at the focal point of the parade in that moment had something on their mind, some story to tell, some story to share. A lot of them had prayer requests that they needed answered. And I found it interesting as I came to about the third parade, I kind of made it a kind of a prayer time. Because, by the way, when you're driving the float, you're going like one mile an hour. 
So you, it takes a while to get through the crowd, you know. It probably as slow as Jesus was going on a donkey. And I started looking intentionally at people in the crowd. And I'd say, hey, Lord, highlight a face to me so I can pray for them. What's their story, Lord? How should I pray for them? And I, so I started doing that, kind of making a little bit of a prayer time as I drove the float in these parades. Each face had a story. I always wondered as a certain face stood out to me in the crowd, what is your story and what, Lord, what should I pray for them about? So then I come back to the parade on Palm Sunday with Jesus, about a two-mile parade to Jerusalem. He's riding on the donkey. They're going pretty slow. I don't see Jesus just looking off in the distance. I see him looking at this person who takes their coat off and lays it down. And he says, yeah, I know, I know, I know their story. I know why they're doing that. Maybe it was one of the blind men Jesus healed. Oh, yeah, I remember I healed him. Or how about, oh, that boy there taking his coat off? I delivered him from an evil spirit. Oh, that's the crippled woman who I healed on the Sabbath. That's why she's taking her coat off. Oh, there's the Canaanite woman that I healed right there. And he looks them in the eyes. Some of the 5,000 fed by Jesus miraculously. Maybe some of them are taking their shirts off their back and laying them down on the road. Hey, there's Zacchaeus, the forgiven tax collector, taking his coat off. Jesus, the mother of Mary. Maybe she took off her cloak. At least one of the leopards who was healed out of the 10, maybe he was there putting his cloak down. Maybe some of the 72 that he had sent out to preach and to teach the gospel to people. Maybe Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who Jesus raised his daughter from the dead. Maybe he's thrown his cloak down. How about the centurion whose servant was healed by Jesus? How about the man healed of leprosy? The widow whom Jesus raised her son from the dead. In the middle, runs into a funeral and raises her son from the dead. How about the paralytic Jesus healed who was lowered through the ceiling? Maybe he's one of the ones taking his coat off and giving it to Jesus. But I started thinking about this, this first group of people. Because there's groups, by the way. By the way, if you haven't realized this, you know, uh, I, I still have this book. It echoes in my mind. I read it two years ago. It has never left me. It's by Robert Crosby called The One Jesus Loves. And his tagline in the book is, Grace is unconditionally given, but intimacy with the Lord must be relentlessly pursued. And he says, you see, every crowd has rings to it about how close they are to the subject of the crowd. For example, in the crowds, the massive crowds that Jesus grew, which had impressive numbers of up to 10,000 people, Jesus pastored megachurches long before they were called megachurches. You would hear people come and hear, and they want to see him. They want to hear what he has to say. And this represents, in his view, the outermost ring of association with Jesus and the least commitment to Jesus, though, he says. He says the crowds represent those who follow Jesus to the places of watching and listening, but that's as far as they go. They're on that outer ring. And I started thinking about this crowd. Okay, how about these guys? How about the ones who took their shirts off their back, their cloaks off their back, and laid them down? Where would they be in this group? Well, let's be realistic. If you look at the association in the crowd, they were probably the most committed to Jesus because they literally took their coats off, their shirts off. It literally cost them something to honor Jesus in the midst of all these other people. And they, and they would lay their cloak down on a muddy, dirty road. And come on, let's be realistic. The donkeys are walking over it. And donkeys have a tendency to go to the bathroom every once in a while. So you, you risk when you lay your coat down, when you sacrifice for Jesus, something that belongs to you. You risk it being kind of destroyed. But they did it anyway. Because they so loved and honored Jesus. They were, they were committed, man. They were there. And I go back to his six rings in this, and I don't think they were part of the crowd. I think they were part of the inner circle, those who took off their coats. Because the next circle is the people who represent the 5,000. He says the next level of relationship is found in the crowd that Jesus touched and helped. And you can look at that in John chapter 6, 1 through 15. Crosby notes the 5,000 represent those who follow Jesus to the places of feeding and healing. 
Now, they're, they're a little bit more committed than the crowd is, who's just listening and taking things in. Now what they're doing is that the crowd of 5,000 is, all right, I want Jesus to touch me, I want him to feed me, and I want him to heal me. So, so they've got a little closer to Jesus. Then the 70 or the 72, he says, is the next ring. He says, this level of relationship with Jesus gets closer to the heart of God. A select group rose up out of the crowd to share and participate in the ministry and the mission of Jesus. They leave the level of observation and enter into serving and participating with Jesus in ministry. The 70 represent those who follow Jesus to the placing of working and serving. So we have another ring that makes up part of this crowd at the parade. Then we have the 12, by the way, that are there with Jesus. Because then out of the crowd rises a band of brothers, a close-knit group that hangs with Jesus. The 12 represent those who walk with Jesus to the place he leads them. They leave all to follow him for about three years. So there's that other level of intimacy with Jesus. And then there's the three spoken about in Scripture. We discover out of this group of 12, there's three who are even closer to Jesus than 12. These three saw, heard, and experienced the most with Jesus. The three represent all those who choose to be closer to Jesus and follow him to the places of glory and the places of suffering for the mission. And that would be our sons of thunder, James and John and Peter. But then there comes the one, and this is what Crosby really got to me about in his book. He says, but there was the one who Jesus was best friends with, the closest with in a sense. In Scripture, one person rises up to be the closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. He sat next to him at the Last Supper. He hung on every word of Jesus. He was at the cross when all the others fled, by the way. He was given the task by Jesus at the cross to take care of Jesus' mother, Mary. He was given a revelation on the island of Patmos that would inspire the world. And his name, you may be thinking, is John. John was the closest to Jesus. And, and here I am again. I'm thinking of Jesus riding on his donkey, looking at the crowds, thinking, oh, that's, that's where you are. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know, I know where you're at. Yeah, you're just here to listen. You're just here for the goodies. I, I, I know where you're at. You know, I get it. But, you know, the great invitation from God is always for us to draw near to him, to come to him. Listen to Jesus' own words. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is always inviting us to leave the realm of we're at and go closer. He's inviting those on the outside of the circle to come closer. He's inviting the 72 to come closer to the 12. He's inviting the 12 to come closer to the three. He's inviting the three to come closer to the one. And he's always inviting us to come closer to him. And Jesus is looking at the crowd, and he really does. He's, you know, here's the difference between Jesus and I driving and walking in a parade. He knows all about these people. He knows their names. He probably has insight and wisdom from God the Father that I never had. Because many times Jesus would say, like, hey, I saw you under the tree, guys. Or, hey, Samaritan woman, I know all about how many, how many marriages you've had, how many failed husbands you've had. I know all about it. See, Jesus knew more than I ever did, and he looked at their faces, and when their faces were highlighted to him, he knew a whole lot more about them than I ever did of anybody I saw in the crowds when I did the parades. And he's inviting them to come closer. I I sometimes wonder if Jesus was in Chicago today, riding on the top of a Ford Mustang. What would you say or do as he passed by you? As he looked into your face, what would you say? What would you do? What would your action be? Would you take your your suit coat off and throw it in the front of the car as a sign of honor to Jesus? See, there's the other group I want to remind you of. The the Palmers, we're called. Now, these individuals are another group in the crowd, and we know that the group that took the shirts off their back are pretty committed to Jesus. But we have a second group, a little bit less committed, because they didn't take the shirts off their back. What they did is they went and pulled palm branches off of trees By the way, the palm branches probably didn't cost them anything. They just went to the trees and cut them off. So they had to do a little bit of service to do it. And then they're like, yeah, I'll give Jesus a palm. Man, he deserves a palm. But I am not laying my coat down in front of that, that, on that dirty road for that donkey to walk over. 
A little bit different level of commitment. I mean, they still love Jesus. Yeah, they still are willing to sacrifice and show they honor him. But it's a little bit less of a commitment or intimacy in that group. But I want to come back to what if Jesus came in riding on a Ford Mustang today into our city? Would you give him the shirt off your back, the coat off your back? Would you do this so that you would be more intimate with him? Would you do this to show that, hey, this is where I stand with Jesus? Would you die for him and stand with him in his message? Would you honor him in front of the crowd and onlookers? Would you stand up and praise him? And maybe we need to ask a question, what is my position in the crowd? Would I be a person who gives him the shirt off my back, or would I just be one who will go cut a palm branch off and give it to him? How intimate are you with Jesus? Would you be part of the group who gives a shirt or part of the palmers? You know, I, I sometimes think maybe the palmers, maybe they said, hey, he deserves a palm branch, but I'm, going to get, I'm not giving him my coat. That costs money. I worked hard for my coat. See, palm branches are good enough for Jesus. Besides, he doesn't need my coat, doesn't need my money. Then, you know, there's this book, another book I read that still kind of echoes in my mind. It's by Kyle Eidelman, not a fan. He says this in his book. There is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. <laughs> what? There is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs something in your life. If it doesn't, are you really a follower? Or he says, or are you just a fan? Big difference between a follower and a fan, he says. Maybe who were the faces in the crowd of the Palmers? By the way, Jesus knew their stories. He knew all about them. Maybe some of the family members are the ones healed by Jesus or delivered by Jesus. Maybe that's this group. Is this a crowd when Scripture says Jesus healed many? Maybe it's some of that group, but there's no names associated with them. The couple who got the blessing of Jesus turning water into wine at their wedding, maybe they're there throwing palm branches down. Hey, man, he made good wine for our wedding. He bailed us out in the moment we needed him. Maybe some of the guests who drank the great wine may be thinking, hey, maybe he'll make some more. Maybe he'll make some more wine that I can drink. Sons of Zebedee's mom, woman caught in adultery, some of the ones who heard Jesus preach a series from the Sermon on the Mount, the ones who remembered the good meal he provided out in the wilderness, I don't know, but who do you think was in that crowd of the palmers laying the palms down? See, our challenge is, is we need to become a completely committed follower of Jesus because Jesus is always inviting us, even as he's riding down to pray, he's inviting all those people to come closer to him. And that invitation still stands, by the way. In his book, Not a Fan, Kyle Ottoman says, hey, do you know what DTR stands for in a relationship? He says, for young people, it terrorizes them. He says, some, some get to the DTR and they break relationships off because the DTR is, it's time to define the relationship, the DTR. And kids don't want to define the relationship. They, they don't want to go to that level or that commitment. And he says, you know what? I think it's time for the church to define their relationship with Jesus. Where yeah, you a fan or a follower? Where do you fit on the rings? Are you on the outskirts moving yourself in? Or are you, where are you at? Are you, what are you doing? And maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, where am I in my relationship? How, where am I at in the crowd? Where, if Jesus saw my face in the crowd, would he say, hey, that he's, he's in the number three position? He's, he's kind of like the three. Or he's, hey, he's part of the, like the twelve. Yeah, Mike's like the 12. Yeah, he's, he, he, would, he gave up to follow me. Yeah, he's part of the 12. You know, this thought goes a little bit deeper for us to define a relationship. Where are we at with Jesus? How intimate are we with Jesus? I think the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them personally. I see that a lot. He goes on, you know, by the way, Kai Ottoman goes on to say another thought. An accurate measurement is, if I want to evaluate if I'm a fan or a follower, he says is the problem is, is with asking that question of yourself, it's almost impossible to be objective because we always think we're doing better than we really are. Well, because I compare myself to Joe down the street who never goes to church, I'm much more of a follower of Jesus than he is. Most would determine the answer to this question by using a highly subjective method of measurement. Many fans mistakenly identify themselves as followers by using cultural comparisons. 
They look at the commitment level of others around them and feel like their relationship with Jesus is solid. Essentially, they grade their relationship with Jesus on a curve by looking at somebody else, not by looking at what Scripture says, what a follower looks like, and what a fan looks like. With someone who's in the crowd or in the 72 or in the 5,000, they, they don't use scriptural measurements to measure how close they are to Jesus. Well, let's look at a third group in the crowd according to our text that we read today. There's the talkers. There's the talkers. There. They're praising Jesus. Hosanna to the King of Kings. Hey, Jesus, our King is here. And, and they, they're verbally they're verbally on the sideline cheering them on and they're rooting them on. And, and, you know, they're some of the guys that turn really quickly on certain football teams. You know, they're just verbal. Once again, this crowd is further distance from Jesus on the intimacy circle, more toward the outer circle, to be honest. Maybe they did not experience his personal touch. Maybe they heard about him through a friend of a friend. Maybe they have an ulterior motive for being at the parade. I don't know, maybe, maybe they're confused as to what it really means to follow Jesus. See, fans often confuse their admiration for Jesus as devotion or commitment to Jesus. They mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. Fans assume their good intentions make up for their apathetic faith. See, fans are happy to follow Jesus as long as that doesn't require any significant changes or have any negative implications. Who were the faces in this crowd? Maybe some of the synagogue regular attenders came out to praise Jesus because of all the miracles they heard of. He was the man, the myth, the legend. There he was in the flesh. People who want to believe Jesus is the promised king of Israel who will deliver them, the Jews, from the Romans. Oh, hey, I'm going to go celebrate this guy because I think he's got the power to overthrow the Roman Empire and set us free. I believe there was a bunch like it. Maybe a bunch of friends of former zealot Simon, one of Jesus' disciples. All his zealot friends were there cheering on Simon. Yeah, yeah we're going to overthrow Rome, baby. Jesus, yeah. Well, that was not Jesus' intention. Maybe some of the oppressed people looking for someone to deliver them from poverty were there as well. Maybe they're part of this crowd. Some of the temple workers, some of the carpenters, maybe some of the vineyard workers. Some who witnessed Jesus' miracles maybe didn't actually get a miracle, but you sometimes wonder, where's this crowd? I mean, they're there, they're talking, they're cheering Jesus on, but there's no action with what they're doing. They're not laying down palm branches. They're not taking the coat off their back for Jesus. And I'm reminded of what it says in James chapter 2, written by Jesus' half-brother. And he talks about faith and deeds. Maybe James noticed it in the crowd that day when he was walking beside Jesus. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And his scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was also called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You know, you can be a talker in the crowd, and you can fall into the talking realm, but the reality is the Scripture defines it really well. You can talk and talk all you want, but if you don't talk to talk and do the stuff, James 1.22, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. It means nothing. God wants you to put your faith in action. He just doesn't want you to talk to talk. He wants you to act it, live it out, put it into motion, like taking the shirt off your back, giving it to Jesus, go cutting a palm branch off a tree and laying it down to honor Jesus, making sure people know where you stand with Jesus. Kyle Eidelman says it this way, many have made a decision to believe in Jesus, 
without making a commitment to follow Jesus. He says the gospel allows no such distinction, folks. You won't find that in Scripture. See, fans have a tendency to confuse their knowledge of intimacy with a relationship with Jesus. In other words, they have a knowledge about Jesus, but they don't really have a relationship with Jesus. They know about him. They know what he's done. They know about history. They know about context and all that. But they really don't know who he is. They haven't talked to him. They haven't associated with him. They haven't experienced him. See, where would you be? How, how are you at in this whole thing? Where's your ring at? How far are you willing to follow Jesus? To the places of watching and listening like the crowd? To the places of feeding and receiving like the 5,000? Or to the places of working and serving like the 72? Because, man, there's a threshold between the 5,000 and the 72. Because, man, they cross the threshold from just receiving from Jesus to say, man, I'm going to go to the next level and I'm going to serve them. And I'm going to get busy. See, we progress now to the next line of intimacy with Jesus or connection with him. It's group number four. I told you, I sat or I drove, I sat in my truck and drove those parades, and there was a lot of kids with their buckets. There are a lot of adults, by the way, if you have ever been to a parade. There's a lot of adults with buckets that want candy, too, by the way. And, man, they're, they're ready, right, waiting for the candy to come. And, man, they, they thrust and grab the candy and throw it in their buckets and their bags. And that's why they're there. That's why they're at the parade. They want the goodies. These are the ones who only want the candy and the goodies. They are just there to parade for the stuff that Jesus can give. But they say nothing and do nothing for him. They never give or sacrificially give to his kingdom. They just have their hands out. They just want some candy. Hey, Jesus, you're like my Santa Claus. This is what I want. Just give it to me. And then you know what? I'll kind of acknowledge you. I'll go to church every once in a while. Uh, you know, I'll acknowledge you to some of my friends, but man, you know, just give me the candy. Give me the candy, Jesus. I'll acknowledge you. I'll shout, hey, Hosanna, King of Kings. Hey, Jesus, you're my Lord. Yeah, that was good candy. I like that. Can you get some more Snickers? I like some more Snickers, Jesus. See, the crowd of faces is only there to pray for the chance at the goodies. Maybe Jesus will throw them some. I don't know. I think he does sometimes. I think he throws us some goodies, some miracles to get our attention. I do when we're part of that crowd because I know Jesus does miracles for unbelievers to get their attention to say, hey, I am who I say I am. So, I mean, I think Jesus will do that. Maybe they're just children and they just don't understand. They're just not mature spiritually to understand who Jesus really is. They just see what they can get out of him instead of understand who he really is. Maybe they're curious about this Jesus and want to see what he would do. See, the groups are getting, by the way, if you haven't noticed, my groups are getting further and further away from Jesus. That's the people who make up the crowd, by the way. Then there's group number five. By the way, you always have them in the group, by the way. The naysayers are critics. <laughs> hey, where do you get that donkey from? Does that guy know that, that he has his donkey? Did they steal that donkey from that owner? Hey, I think he's a thief. Look at him. He stole that donkey. I mean, the naysayers and the critics are always in the crowd, by the way. I mean, they're at football games. They're at baseball games. And they're ripping apart everybody and ripping them down and criticizing them. They're the redneck Christians, by the way. I had a guy come into our church one time, and, and I, I was an intern at a church in Plymouth, Minnesota. And a guy came in, and I introduced myself as Mike. And he says, yeah, he says, uh, yeah, I came to your church. I believe God has called me here. And I go, really? Why do you believe God has called you? He says, well, I'm a redneck Christian, and I've come here to straighten all you out. And I thought to myself, Lord Jesus, send him away. Please don't let him ever come back. <laughs> but it's what he said to me. I'm a redneck Christian, and this is my mission, to criticize you guys. I'm like, really? I don't know if I see that in Scripture. But, you know, that's kind of what this crowd is. And Jesus had run-ins with them before, by the way. Even when he did miracles, he had run-ins with them. They were complaining about all the praise he was getting. If you remember in our text we read, Hey, Jesus, Pharisee said, Stop those people from praising you. And Jesus looks at them and says, Hey, if they don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out and praise me. It's my time. I'm fulfilling scripture. This is a prophetic word that God said 480-something years ago was going to happen, and it's happening. And if they don't say something, the rocks are going to cry out. The trees are going to start clapping their hands. Let's be realistic. Jesus is like, It's going to happen. Because I'm fulfilling prophetic word of God the Father. What do their faces look like? A lot of time, by the way, I had to say this, religious leaders and your minions is what they look like. 
They are scouring, looking down on Jesus and the mob in their religious dress and robes. They look all pretty and look really religious. Jesus sees their faces, by the way, and he knows their stories too. These would be all the religious people who are all about the do's and don'ts and don't want traditions to change. They cannot even recognize their own Messiah who is right in front of them. I mean, I love what Cal says in his book. He says, these are the guys, by the way, in the Bible, we read about a group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew a lot about God. Someone wanted to play Bible trivia pursuit. They were the top winners of Bible trivia pursuit. Hey, they were great at Godopoly. They were the big winners of God. They had all kinds of knowledge about God. Or Bible baseball. They knew all the stats. They knew all the rules and regulations. They would dominate. They knew about God. But what we discover is they, read they really didn't even know God when he was right in front of them. The only God they learned and studied about, they didn't even recognize him. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That description seems to fit a lot of fans, wouldn't you say, in a church today? I know, the Pharisees. Many fans have given their minds to the study of God, but they never surrendered their hearts to God. But they didn't really know God, is the point. The point is, Jesus said, they don't even know who I am, and I'm right here on a donkey, right in front of them. They don't even know who I am. This is what often separates the fans from the followers, by the way. It's the difference between knowledge and intimacy. This will be the bulk of the religious leaders of the day. This will be the politically correct Jews who want to keep the Romans happy, so therefore they're trying to tell Jesus, tone it down, keep it down, tell them to shut up. Romans are going to take notice. This will be the ones in opposition to what Jesus represents, God in the flesh, God's word, God's truth. I imagine this group holding up signs like you see at parades, promoting their sinful ways or recruiting people to their sin-filled beliefs during the parade. They're promoting their own agenda at the parade. Not Jesus, their own agenda. Trying to get the limelight, the media, the coverage, the camera. I expect most of them are Roman soldiers will be in this group. I expect Jewish officials will be in this group. And I guess I have to ask the question, would you be in this group? The naysayers, the critics? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Nicodemus was part of this group. But I think something happened when he saw Jesus riding in on the donkey. It clicked in his brain. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, he's fulfilling prophecy. He is the one. He's raising people from the dead. He's preaching the truth. Nicodemus, this is the God. That's why he secretly, a little bit later, comes to see Jesus in the dark in private. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Wait a minute. I've been religious my whole life. No, no, you don't need to be religious. You need to be born again. You need to accept me as your Lord and Savior. You need to open your eyes and see I'm right here. And Nicodemus, we know, it changes his life. How about other faces in the crowd? Who do you think were here? Who were some of the famous people in the crowd that Jesus saw? Local politicians, maybe the mayor of Jerusalem was there. How about the actors or actresses? Because, well, they're always in the limelight today, right? They're probably in the parade, drawing attention to themselves, making their points known. How about leaders of organizations or business owners? How about reporters drawing attention to themselves as reporters? How about the officers of the Roman army? I bet you they were there. They had to be there. This is a little bit sketchy stuff going on here. How about other faces in the crowd? Who do you think were in the crowd that day? How about the carpenter who made Jesus' cross? You think he was there? Or how about the soldier at the cross who were part of his crucifixion? How about the soldier who, when he died after the earthquake in the sky during dark, said, he praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Was he there? How about the ones who later would cry, crucify him in front of Pilate? Now they're saying, Hosanna, King of David. We're either going to be the same one. Jesus looked at him and said, yeah, by Friday, you're going to yell, crucify him. Now you're saying, Hosanna, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by Friday, you're going to say, crucify me. I know what you're going to do. I was wondering if the thieves on the cross were there. How about Barabbas? Do you think he was there? Temple guards, the Roman guards who would guard the tomb of Jesus. How about others? I wonder when Jesus looked at the faces in the crowd, what or who he saw. I believe he saw all the testimonies in the crowd, the walking miracles in the crowd, the lost in the crowd, the deceived ones in the crowd, the religious blindness in the crowd, the hungry in the crowd, the loved ones in the crowd. I bet he saw them all, but he knew exactly where they all were. So here we go, back to what I highlighted when I read this text out of Luke. The parade is moving forward. People are cheering. 
And Jesus comes to a dead stop. People start backing up, tripping over each other because the parade comes to a dead stop. And everybody's tripping and falling. Like, what happened? We were moving. We were moving toward Jerusalem. And everybody's falling over now. Like, what happened? And they look at Jesus, and there he is weeping and crying because he sees Jerusalem. He sees the crowd. He sees their faces. He knows their stories. And he sees how deceived they all are. And he starts to cry, and he weeps. And he sees the vision of what's going to happen 40 years later when the city is destroyed because they didn't even know their own Messiah, Jesus, coming in as it was prophesied he would. You know, Jesus has been pictured by some movies as kind of emotionless, but here is another reference to him, shedding tears over the people he loved. He wept when he saw the pain and grief of Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. Now he weeps for the people of Jerusalem because he sees how deceived they are and clueless to what is coming their way. He sees how quickly their chairs will turn to cursing toward him by Friday. He sees how sin has blinded them. It's written on their faces. He sees into their souls. He sees how they cannot even see their deliverer, their Messiah. He is right there in front of them. And the knowing and the deception breaks Jesus' heart and he starts to weep in the middle of the great parade. What does that tell you about Jesus? And I have to ask the question. I mean, Jesus sees all of our faces today. Even if you're at home looking through the camera, he still sees your face. He knows where you're at with him, how intimate you are or aren't with him. Are you on the outer ring, number six, or are you in part of the one group? Where are you at in between? And I guess my challenge to you is Jesus is always saying, come closer, take a step closer. Maybe you're in the outer ring, then step, hey, come closer, come to the 5,000. If you're at the 5,000, come to the 72. Hey, let's leave the fan thing and become a follower. Let's be willing to take the shirt off your back and give it to Jesus and experience him that way like you never have before. Or hey, go out and cut some palm branches off and lay them at his feet. Decide to serve his kingdom, stand up for him, honor him. You know, we live in a society today that really devalues Christianity and Jesus. I just want you to know that. Just take a look around. There's a lot of people that devalue Christianity, devalue the church, devalue the message of the cross, and even devalue Easter. And I don't know about you, but I'm being challenged by the Lord to stand up like never before and let people know where I stand. I, I did it yesterday on the phone with someone. And I probably haven't been that bold in a while, and it was a family member, and I just told them straight out. And then they quieted down. <laughs> so they did. And I, my challenge is, where are you at today? See, he wept when he saw the pain and grief of Mary and Martha. And I wonder if Jesus weeps today when he looks at our churches. You know, as I stand up here in front and preach, I look at people's faces too. I can see your faces, by the way. I can see if you're sleeping. I can see if you're playing on your phone. I can see what you're doing. I mean, I don't know why people don't think I can see them when I'm preaching. Like, I just zone them up. But I can see what people are doing. It's like as a teacher. You can see what your students are doing. So you can. Can I say come closer to Jesus? Let's really realize why he came into Jerusalem riding on that donkey and there was such a great parade. It's because he was bringing a breakthrough to the grave for us. He was going to go choose to die on a cross, take our sins upon his back, and he was going to die on a cross so that we could be set free and find freedom. And so that we could restore our relationship with God the Father. That's why he came into Jerusalem. Lose all of your preconceived ideas of what you want Jesus to do for you or what you think he should do. And realize this is what Easter is all about. And I just challenge you, let it be special this week. I really do challenge you to come and decorate one of the parking spots out in the parking lot. And maybe praise Jesus in your little parking spot. Write messages to him in chalk. Make some sacrifices for Jesus in, in this whole thing this week. Yeah, we can't do our service, and just so you know, I went to the mayor, and the mayor was for it. I went to the city commissioner. He was for us having our drive-in uh, drive service, but when they called the state down to Governor Pritzker's office, they said, absolutely no way. They wouldn't let us do it. And if we did it, guess what would happen? Just like Rodney Howard Brown down in Florida <laughs> is what would happen. So, so, so we made the decision not to do it. I, I do believe in staying safe. I do believe that 
God can still be celebrated on Easter individually. You know, we do it corporately, but apart. Amen? We understand that the church is not the building. The church is all of us that come together for church. And so we can still celebrate the Lord. So I challenge you to come and do that in the parking lot this week. Second thing I challenge you to do is hang that red ribbon out on your front door to say, hey, Lord, I'm crying out to you. Just like we stand for Jesus. We stand for God the Father and that he's going to protect our family. And so put that ribbon out on your door front. And when people ask, let them know why it's there. And it ties into the Passover, how Jesus protected those from the death angel. I think we need to have faith over fear today. I think we need to put our faith into action and we need to do these little things to prove that we're putting our faith into action, like James said, that we're not just a bunch of talkers and gabbers and blabbers, but we really believe. We really know Jesus and we really want to serve him. So what do we need to know as we wrap this up today? We need to know that Jesus still looks at the crowd of faces in the world and he knows your face and he knows your story. He even knows your name, by the way. He knows your potential and the reality of who you are in him and what he wants you to do for him. He wants you to draw close to him in his mission and be with him and serve with him, sacrifice for his kingdom. Why do we need to do this? Well, we sometimes think we're just the face in the crowd. Can I tell you, you're not just the face in the crowd. Jesus knows your face. He knows who you are. He knows your story. And he wants your story to be part of his story, history. He wants your story to be part of history, the history of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus sees you and he knows your story and he has a plan and a purpose for your life, even in the midst of coronavirus. He also knows if you're living up to your full potential, to the plan or the purpose he has for your life. He knows what group you fall into, by the way. By the way, And he always wants you to come closer. So what if you're out in the crowd? Hey, what? Stop just listening and looking and start participating. Take the step. What do we need to do? We need to come closer to Jesus. We need to draw near to God each day in different ways and especially in times of trial and tribulation. We need to connect with God every day. We need to move a circle closer to Jesus. Why do we need to do this? I think it's time for the church to move closer to Jesus in this pandemic. I think it's time to step out in faith. I think it's time to sacrifice for the kingdom and for others. I believe when we experience deeper intimacy with God, we will have peace. See, Jesus riding on a colt represented he was bringing peace to Israel. And he wants to bring us peace in the midst of the storm. Amen? So with that, I just challenge you. Are you willing to come closer today? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each and every person that is listening today. I ask, Father God, that they would draw closer to you through this time of this virus epidemic. I pray that fear would leave and faith would replace the fear. I pray that perfect love would overshadow their life and drive out any fear. I pray that people would get a fresh revelation of who you really are. That they would lose all their preconceived context of who you are. And that they would see you as the Messiah, the King, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who can heal people supernaturally. The one who can put an end to this virus. The one who can supernaturally calm the storms of life. Just like Jesus calmed the storm on the sea and he just told it to stop and it stopped. And I know Jesus could say to this virus, stop and it can stop. But we need to stand up in faith. We need to humble ourselves and pray. And we need to seek your face, Lord. And I believe you're going to bring healing to our land. I believe you're going to bring revival as a result of this whole thing. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take this thing seriously. That we would not look at it as a little bit of a, a time of vacation or a little bit of a break, a little bit of a break from church but that we would have a holy desire within us to want to come back together and worship you. And so, Lord, I just pray that this Easter week will become special for many people. And I pray that they would make the commitment to come closer to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that commitment today, I encourage you to pray the prayer to come closer to Jesus. If you did, shoot me an email at pastormm at christianhills.org. Give me a call, 708-382-0409. And let me know you made that commitment today. Because I believe God's going to do something special this week. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of it. So I'm going to go closer. I'm just going to get closer to Jesus this week. God bless you. Have a great week. If you need prayer, please post it on our website there or Facebook. If you need prayers, put them up there. We will pray for you. Uh, you, can, uh, you can leave prayer requests on my phone. Once again, or email PastorMM at ChristianHills.org. We'll get them up on the board. We will be having a prayer meeting again on Tuesday from 8.30, 9.30, which will be live. 
So we encourage you to join in and be a part of that prayer meeting as well. And with that, well, God bless you. Have a great week. And let's celebrate Easter, even though we may not be together. We can still celebrate Easter with the prayers to the Lord. Let's start over with Isa. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. We miss you guys so much. Um, because we miss you guys, we would love for you guys to take a picture, post it in the comments, um, post it on Facebook, Instagram. Be sure to tag us. Um, we miss you guys so much. Uh, be sure to tune in next week at 10 o'clock for our e service. And we hope you guys stay safe and healthy. We love you guys. Have a good one. <laughs>